there was is a really nice asset in Atlanta, 80s build Marietta, very nice pocket of Marietta on top of that. So I had a good relationship with the broker and that asset was going to be, they were whispering and they said, look, I don't think we're really going to get it, but I think it's going to be about $34 million, right? And that was still like 34, that seems pretty steep, but whatever, it was, at least it was penciling. It was underwriting, so you can at least make some case for it, Right. That look organically, the rent, the rent growth, the story is there. The rent growth is there. They have proven the business model out. Now you go and do, you know, put lipstick on a pig and do all that stuff. It ended up trading for $39 million plus, right? And I know $38 million plus. And at $38 million plus, even the broker told me that, and these are his exact words, wow, things got a little crazy. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we have a different kind of episode. We're bringing back our very first guest, Omar Khan for a specific conversation regarding one specific question that I know I have been debating for months and so has Omar. And it's a question that we're excited to talk through today and just have a, an open-ended conversation. Omar, it's exciting to have you here again. How are you? Thank you. And it's exciting to be back. I'd like to call myself the returning champion, not the returning guest. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. So Omar, can you give us a, a quick recap of a little bit of your background and, and who you are. I mean, we have the first episode, which hopefully everybody here has uh, gone back and listened, but just a, a brief background on, on who you are and what you do. Look, uh, personally, my family's I'm a third generation real estate sponsor slash investor, whatever you want to call it. So family-wise, you know, again, it wasn't a dream of mine to do this. It just so happened that we'd invested our money, parked a lot of our money and all of that stuff. Professionally, my background's in uh, finance. So I did both sell and buy side, which basically means sell side is the investment banking advisory side. Buy side is the, well, you get the advice and then you spend your money and do the operations and all of that sort of stuff. So I did both of that. I uh, eventually, when I moved from Canada about five and a half, six years ago, give or take, I was at the right place at the right time because I was in Texas. But the other big issue was, or thing was that my wife's a physician. So between the two of us, when we were seeing our paychecks, I mean, we were comfortably paying into the six figures in taxes, right? And mm -hmm. nice problem to have, but it's kind of depressing when you're young and you're like, dude, I could use all this money for other things. So that was a big impetus. But I think the big reason how I have a segue into real estate commercial, especially was the fact that I had a family background. I had a professional background in terms of investment management, structuring deals. So that kind of gave me a leg up. I had a built-in network to begin with. And that's, you know, then you start doing one deal, one deal leads to two deals, sometimes two deals and you stop for a little while and then you do more deals, you know? So it's just putting one foot after the other, basically. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what's happened. But again, there was no grand plan to ever be a real estate in sponsor or investor, you know, yeah. it was just right place, right time, right set of connections. And, you know, it organically happened. So I'm a constant reader of your newsletter, Omar. I actually really enjoy it. I enjoy your direct approach that you use in, in your newsletter. They're short, sweet, easy to read, and usually provide some great insights and great food for thought, which is usually why I find myself 
replying to your newsletters yeah, with and we one communicate, right? or another. Yeah, 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 we communicate often about through that, yeah. Exactly. And so a great example of this is, is last week when you sent out a, a newsletter regarding a specific question that I'd like to to read through because it's what spurred this this conversation that we're, that we're having. So uh, this is a newsletter from last week. It begins, a great question to ask when confronted with any claim compared to what? I was thinking of the risk profile of a new development. It's considered risky in general, but what comparisons do we have? Well, the current market conditions are really frothy. Let's take assets built in the 80s, 90s. They are now trading at or close to replacement cost. This means that 30 to 40-year-old assets are roughly selling for the same amount as the cost to build a new development. These older assets typically have outdated floor plans with high maintenance expense, so they will require a huge investment and ramp-up period to make them work as attractive deals. Compared to those assets, a real estate sponsor can assume a similar level of risk in a new development. Once built... This new asset requires minimal maintenance. The old asset's ramp-up period is comparable to the new development build. But then the new asset is far more efficient on rent per square foot as well as cost per square foot. On top of this, residents in new-built communities tend to have higher incomes and they're able to withstand economic downturns like a pandemic better than residents in lower-income housing communities. So in that sense, the new development is lower risk. So Omar, let us know what were the thoughts that you were having that led you to write this newsletter and just what were your thoughts in general? Well, the thought is, I think, I'm not the only person who's had this thought, I think. It's just that, uh, okay, there were many thoughts, but the real big thought behind it was that there was is a really nice asset in Atlanta, 80s build Marietta, very nice pocket of Marietta on top of that. So I had a good relationship with the broker. And that asset was going to be, they were whispering and they said, look, I don't think we're really going to get it, but I think it's going to be about $34 million, right? And that was still like 34, that seems pretty steep, but whatever. It was, at least it was penciling. It was underwriting. So you can at least make some case for it, right? That look organically, the rent, the rent growth, the story is there. The rent growth is there. They have proven the business model out. Now you go and do, you know, put lipstick on a pig and do all that stuff. It ended up trading for $39 million plus, right? And I know $38 million plus. And at $38 million plus, even the broker told me that, and these are his exact words, wow, things got a little crazy. I don't know what the hell happened. And a broker is never going to say that. You obviously, not just a broker, any salesperson is never going to admit that, oh, this is becoming very expensive, right? Because, you know, it's just the nature of the game. And I know the guy, right? We, we know each other. We socialize with each other somewhat uh, frequently. And I was like, okay, so just forget about me because two other people were in that race to win this, which I was like, this is kind of a weird race to win something. And so what do you think? He's like, dude, I would not invest a dime of my own money into this thing at this price. It's, it's, I mean, this is a freaking joke now. And it was funny because now he's basically bringing an off-market deal. It's a lease-up, Right. In a similar or slightly better sub market, it's a new deal. And that deal is actually cheaper on a price per unit basis and a price per square foot basis than this 80s vintage deal. So, and by the way, they didn't cut any corners. It's a nice class A building. So the point was, look, if you're going to get something that's 80s to 90s vintage, no matter how much lipstick on a pig you put, no matter how great your construction is, look, the structure is still an 80s, 90s vintage. You can't change the bare bones of that project. So, and obviously, Anything that's that old, it's not just a building, any business that's that old, any asset that's that old, there are going to be certain issues that just happen with just because it's old. That's just the way things are in life, right? So 
why would you go acquire something like that versus presumably a new build you could just acquire off a developer, right? Same price, same same demographics, pretty much. Better, more efficient all across the board. And then once you've acquired it on an ongoing basis during operations, you don't have to dump a boatload of money into it. You don't have to like kill yourself in the process of both just the rehab process, but also the management of expenses process. You don't got to do all of that because once you buy a new build, if it's done the right way, for the first couple of years at least, unless something drastic happens, it's kind of set it and forget it sort of deal, right, in terms of operations, right? So why would you do that? And it's kind of funny that when I started talking to people, a lot of people say, well, new development's risky. I was like, yeah, but I mean, it's risky compared to something, right? It's not just risky in absolute terms. I mean, nothing is risky in absolute terms. Like what if new development is risky, but somebody was selling you an 80s vintage asset in Atlanta for $500,000 a unit? I just made up a number, right? Well, it's not too risky then, is it, right? And it's weird that conceptually people understand that concept. They, they get, they conceptually understand it. But in reality, when it comes time to actually putting their money down, which you would think they would be more conservative on, it's like these two things don't match. It's really weird. Like I was talking to the broker and said, hey, I'm just really curious. These people who are investing, there's some fund. What's their rationale? They, they've got to have some rationale, right? I mean, they're not stupid people. And the guy called me back two days later. They're like, yeah, we just have funds we have to deploy. And this seems like a decent asset. Literally, that was their line of thinking. We have money burning a hole in our pocket. Please take my money. And if you ever do that in any country in the world, would you tell somebody, I have money burning a hole in my pocket. Please take it from me. Somebody's going to take it from you. <laughs> and so it's not that hard, right? So that was what it led to. I got a lot of interesting responses, but it was still funny. Even the responses I did get were people who were just repeating, well, new development's risky. I was like, yeah, but what? what is our comparison? Yeah, uh, it's now you, you've given me a little bit more clarity on on the question that you posed at the beginning, which is compared to what a different way that I've heard it phrased and phrased it myself many times is at what price, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's the same, same thing. It's, yeah. it's the same concept. There's no such thing as something that makes sense regardless of the price. Yeah. Right. So at least for financial assets. And I think that's where where you find opportunity because you're it's and a lot of what I've thought about this subject I've learned or read from Howard Marks. I don't know if, if you're yeah. familiar with him. But for example, he recently published a memo about a year ago called Thinking and Bets. And it was a concept of considering the spread, right? When deciding what team to bet on, you can't just pick the better team, right? Because yeah. It's not that that you can bet on a team regardless of the spread. So it's considering the spread, considering the price. And he also calls it second level thinking, right? First level thinking is say, I'm going to invest in Austin because it's growing, right? But second level thinking is, yes, but everybody knows that. I mean, uh, up yeah. to what price are you willing to pay for an asset in Austin? Or somebody may say, I'm not investing in Houston because it's dependent on oil or it's highly... Yeah, volatile market, um, or because it's susceptible to flooding. But again, the question is at what price? Because there or has to be a price, price where or it makes what sense. price? Or are you just saying I will never invest in Houston? Or are you saying, given certain conditions changing, I will invest in Houston? Because these are two very different things. One is I will never go to Houston, and one is I will go to Houston if I think X Y Z is there. But people tend to confuse the two things with each other. 
Yeah, exactly. And so regarding the question of buying old vintage assets or old referring to 70s, 80s vintage assets, 90s, I think what has led to this that, that you're starting to see, I mean, it has to be due to the tremendous amount of new players and new competition and capital that's flowing into this kinds of assets. Yes, but see, the other thing also is, because I was thinking about it over the weekend, I think from a sponsor point of view, it's also an easier sell because the marketing is so strong, just general, not like a specific sponsor's marketing. The general marketing around this is so strong to say multifamily, multifamily, great returns, great returns, never goes down in a recession. What, what? Not saying it's right or wrong, but the marketing is so strong that a sponsor can take a shitty deal in multifamily, go advertise it and possibly get raise more money at a quicker pace than somebody wants to take, say, an office building or a retail building which could be a better deal because that's very regional and localized, right? And could be a better deal, but because it's hard to market and explain the concept oftentimes to the layperson, that deal might not actually get funded, even though it might be a better deal. So I think from a sponsor's point of view, that is also one of those things because it's not just how much money I have, but how much money can I go raise? And how hard is it for me to explain the story? Because a lot of times I've, I've seen, because I do this all the time, I also see a lot of times people, investors especially, tend to confuse the fact that I have gone to an apartment building or I've lived in an apartment building once or twice in my life to I know how an apartment building is run. Again, you understand people tend to confuse the two because I think they're just familiar with the concept of an apartment building, right? Versus not necessarily being as familiar with the concept of acquiring an office building or a retail building, even though that might be a better deal at that moment in time. So mm -hmm. I think the marketing around this also plays a huge role in the way sponsors or newer capital is looking to basically come in and acquire so something. What, so what do you think is a more challenging sell from an investment standpoint? It, like, do you think new development is? See, that's a good one because, yes, I think to a certain degree, new development is a more challenging sale, relatively speaking, compared to an existing sale. But I also think it also depends how you as a sponsor have positioned yourself. So if you as a sponsor, for instance, go for five years in a row saying, new development sucks. It's the worst thing in the world. Why would you do that? Right? And just buy my 70s, 80s, 90s vintage assets, right? And then you do a hard pivot and you go to development. I think you will lose a lot of credibility. But the thing is that if you say the opposite thing, you say from the start, look, a lot of this is opportunistic. Right, Because this is not like, look, most investors, including me, I don't have $10 billion. So whereas I would love to have a programmatic strategy, I just don't have $10 million every month to deploy that I have to deploy. Right, So I have to be more picky. I have to be opportunistic. Right, I have to be opportunistic in the way I'm deploying capital because I'm not an institution. So if I go from the word go and say, look, I think a lot of times it's dependent on the deal. A lot of times it's opportunistic and you have to pick and choose your battles. The, I have personally seen this in my life that the climb is much harder when you're starting out because your your message involves people thinking. And you and I both know this. People hate thinking. No matter what they say, the average person does not want to think. So if you tell them anything which requires them to think somewhat, it's going to be a hard time convincing people initially. But once you get over that hump, in the long term, that type of sponsor who's laid the foundation correctly might have an easier chance of pivoting into development, into newer businesses, because that's 
because they've said, look, there's a framework behind the thing versus somebody who say maybe gone to one of these stupid mentorship programs or just making a career change. They just, they just want to get anything and just want to put their name on it. Right. Well, they just say it's the best thing in the world. How could you ever lose money? And now when they want to do a pivot, so at their start might be very fast, but their long-term potential might be very less. Whereas the person who goes with the thinking process, if they're diligent at it, they don't lose hope, their start might not be as fast, but their upward potential is much higher. But again, it also requires you to understand that this is like a five, six, seven, eight, ten 10-year slog before you get over that hump. It's, I mean, it'll take a... Oh, you mean from the sponsor's perspective? Yeah, on yeah, yeah. To, because to getting you, there. Yeah, because yeah. you have to convince investors, right? Because your pitch as an intelligent sponsor is, look, we have to be opportunistic. We have to think about these things. We can't just like put our name on everything. Whereas some other guy comes and say like, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine, right? So people tend to typically gravitate to that sort of person because they think, oh, he can take quick decisions. He must be a bold thinker, right? And you're like, well, there's a big difference between being bold and a dumbass. It's interesting because something that, I mean, as I've tried to tackle this question, something that I've learned is that there's two ways to answer the question. And one is from the GP perspective and another very different answer could be from the LP perspective. And I'm coming at this more from an LP perspective on investing through GPs and you're seeing it more so from from a GP perspective. What should I be focusing on? And... So my reply to your newsletter, which I'd like to read because it leads into the next part of the question, which is what I replied with is, I've been pondering the question for months. The thing is, I don't think the market sees development as that risky in reality, as evidenced by widely accepted returns. From the deals we see, most acquisition projects target around a 15% IRR, while most new developments target net to LP, a 17 to 18% IRR, sometimes higher, and have no problem being capitalized. So you were, you were saying everybody sees development as very risky. I mean, that's the the perception. The development is risky. You want to buy an asset that's already been finished, that's built, that doesn't have to go through construction, that's already leased up, and that generates cash flow from the moment you buy it. And so based on that, when we first started sourcing opportunities and deals to invest in, I was surprised to see that the, the spread was seemingly pretty tight. I mean, Very we thin, yeah. Looking, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we were looking at acquisition deals that are targeting 15, 16 and new developments targeting 17, 18. So based on that thinking, I mean, it would make sense to go with the acquisitions, right? I mean, why go through all the development all risk damage, basically. for 2%? But again, the, the, who goes through the brain damage is the GP. So I'm, I'm not the LP. No, 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 but see... No, but you raise a good point, though, because in effect, you are kind of going through a brain damage in the sense that you are taking more, whether you realize it or not, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you are, again, relatively, all things being equal, a development is sometimes more, more often than not, is riskier than an acquisition, all other things being equal. So so let's talk about that. Yeah, for an extra, just on an extra 2% a year, as an example, now it could be more, but projected, an extra 2% a year is the juice worth the squeeze? I mean, why would you even bother? Because you're probably going to go through one and a half, two years, not getting any cash flow, kind of going through that process where you may or may not get entitled, construction costs may or may not go up, like lumber's gone up exponentially, right? So you're bringing a lot of variables into play for not enough return. Exactly. That was the first thing that I noticed and that we're still sorting through. So I'd like to emphasize when we refer to those risks associated with development, what I see from a standpoint are construction risk, 
well, before construction risk, you have permits and entitlement risk. You have construction risk, and then you have lease up risk, yeah. which you don't get from a new a new build. So it's interesting, and again, it goes back to the GP from the LP. Who's taking what risks? Because and there's many different variables, and I think that I mean, if there's something that I've realized that it is that it's pro- we're probably not going to be able to arrive at one answer or two. Yeah. Or like an answer that fits everybody. I mean, it's very dependent on the group, the who's investing with. But what I bring it back to is one of the guests that we had in, in a podcast a few episodes ago was Ellie Reader, who a company called Castle and Terra Properties, and he uh, buys properties around the U.S. And something that he said stuck with me, which is he says that he doesn't feel like he is being adequately compensated for the risk associated with ground up development and that really stuck to me because that's summed up how i was seeing what i was seeing in terms of a return profile i was seeing that there's more risk that i'm not being compensated by so now the the, that's the question is i mean i think that's that's what it comes down to just aligning the risk with the potential upside that you're getting from a sponsor or i don't don't know about mr reader but first of all, I want to apologize. My kid is at the back. He's screaming. So we'll <laughs> apologize okay. for him. So look, look, he might be right because that Mr. Reader guy, I don't know him personally and what he does, but they might be buying a certain profile of properties. And I don't know what that profile is. And given that profile of property, they must have their system so down to a science now that they're thinking, look, I can do all these 15 extra steps and maybe I get more money. Or this is the burden hand. I already got my team here. They can decide. It's just plug and play now, right? So for them, it might not be an issue. But for you as an LP investor, what I think about is, look, forget about the GP. You have to look at yourself selfishly because this is your money at stake, right? Because look, anytime a GP, anytime a sponsor needs your money, they're going to tell you this is the greatest deal since sliced bread. I mean, oh my God, why would you not spend, invest your money in this deal? This is so good. And then people start saying terms like risk-adjusted returns. And you're like, dude, okay, explain to me what do you mean by risk-adjusted returns? Because yeah, I get the returns at the top, but what is your denominator? How do you figure out what that denominator is? And very big mathematicians haven't been able to figure out that denominator. So people start saying these words, which essentially if you tell them to break it down, their minds just stop, right? Because they can't lay it down mathematically for you. So in the context of a limited partner, I would say that before you even look at returns or whether you're adequately being compensated for returns, the first screening that you have to do is, is this actually a person? Your biggest risk is, I feel, not a lot of times just the deal. Your biggest risk is a sponsor. So is this the sponsor or does this sponsor, are the stars aligned for me to invest with this sponsor? Because if that doesn't work, and this is oftentimes something that people overlook, right? People say they do it, but not really. Nobody really does it. If you don't have an alignment with a sponsor, and whatever your alignment version of that means, dude, forget about the deal, man. Who gives a crap about the deal? Because oftentimes with a good quality sponsor, you can even focus on, say, slightly riskier deals because you know your risks are aligned with that person. So the question of acquisition or development comes way later in the game, I feel. First is, is this even the person I want to work with? Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to be a one and done. Every time you do a deal, you've got to get to know the sponsorship team. You've got to go through all of that brain damage because it's just a lot of work, right? So from an LP point of view, I understand people say risk and returns and all of that. But 
a question that often people either don't ask or they ask and they overlook or they don't do enough work on is, well, are these even people I want to work with over five years or 10 years? And that's something that I feel is not quantitative, like it's hard to quantify it, right? And that's the biggest risk I think people have, more than even whether it's acquisitions or developments or it's a newer business, it's opportunistic, what it is, all of that I agree. I agree completely. And that's that's something that we try to, to do and emphasize. Whenever and it's we very hard to it. do. It's just so hard to do. Yeah. In trying to quantify the answer to the question, ground up versus acquisition, we've tried to come up with what factors would lead to an answer. And for, for example, what I mean by that is an in, uh, somebody who is a big proponent for buying, right? Sam Sell. Yeah. Sam Sell, he always, he's, I mean, he's a big advocate for buying buildings versus developing. I, I mean, he, he said before, like, why go through the brain damage? Why go through the risk when you can just buy an asset? And I've tried to think through that because I think development does make sense under certain conditions. It's not, as we were saying earlier, it's not that something on absolute terms always makes more sense. So I don't think that Yes, uh, Samsung brings up some good points, but again, we come to the question of compared to what or at what price. And also, he's Sam Zell. So I'm just saying a lot of times people quote Sam Zell and Bill Gates, and I was like, dude, like a lot of times people say, Bill Gates dropped out of college. I was like, yeah, he went to Harvard, and you're going to a shitty state school. There is a big freaking difference. Okay. I mean, it's the same with Sam Zell. A lot of times people say Sam Zell or John Paulson or somebody, and I say, yeah, but you also have to realize Sam Zell can say this after multiple decades of putting his money where his mouth is. And a lot of times it's like that Mike Tyson saying, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. So where Sam Zell and all these legends stand out necessarily isn't just their investment philosophy. It's their emotional temperament. Have they been able to basically follow the strategy they laid out during the tough times? Because during the good times, anybody can follow a strategy. I agree completely. I agree completely. But where, where I was going with this reference is more so trying to understand. So, for instance, again, going back to the factors that you used to find an answer. So, when Sam Sell started buying apartments, that was back in the 70s, yeah. 80s. That was when the interest rate environment was very different than what yeah. we have now. Right now, we're in a historically low interest rate environment. Back then, we had very high interest rates. You also, I don't think, had the same appeal for multifamily, I mean, yeah. that we have that we have right now. I mean, or it was has, a less discovered asset class, as an example. Exactly, and you also didn't have the same occupancy levels that you have right now, which are at least over the last decade have been higher, which drive costs up for acquisitions. In the sense that, I think that when he started out, it, it made a lot more sense. I mean, because he. Ultimately, what what it comes down to, in a way, is is replacement cost. He was buying buildings for cheaper than he could oh, have built yeah. in that environment. But is that the case today? I don't know. I mean, I don't you have think so. cap Not rates, cap rates that are historically low, and that's when you have to ask yourself: Well, does it make more sense to pay a three and a half cap rate for this an asset of the seventies, or pay? and cost a little bit more price per door and build up a, a brand new asset. Look, and to be honest with you, like I'm actually doing a development right now in South Dakota and Sioux Falls. And we, and again, this is just an example, but I talked to other guys and they have similar metrics that 
a lot of developers these days are building into like a six and a half, seven percent cap rate, mm-hmm. right? Like they're building into it within two years of operation, even when you stress test something. You know, it's not seven; it'll be six percent, right? I mean, the spread between a six percent cap rate, even under you know like a stress case, right? Building into a six percent cap rate, and say mid three percent cap rate on acquisition right now in a market like Austin. I mean, the spread is so huge that you're like, okay, like, I mean, what's up, right? Because now it's a very tempting offer. Now, if the spread is only 50 basis point, that's a very different ballgame. Mm-hmm. But now you come into, again, in trying to answer this question, then something we, we come back to again, like what are the deals that we're seeing that are that are coming across our table? It's, Okay, we see all this and we make the analysis. We say, okay, ground up development seems to make sense. But now we're looking at these deals. And again, the spread that we're seeing is is very thin. And so we're asking ourselves, well, is it the case that, I mean, again, going back to a different perspective from LP and GP. And so what, what we're sort of seeing is that the terms, the terms of the deal really matter in terms of oh, yeah. like structure of the deal oh. and waterfall terms, because oftentimes... That's what limits the upside of a ground-up development to the LP to a 17 or 18%. Mm-hmm. And from our perspective, how we see that is we're sharing in a big portion of the risk and not enough oh, of the upside. Yeah. Of the yeah, upside. yeah. And that happens in an environment like today's when you just said there's people who are looking to throw money at you. Yeah. So we're seeing that we're in a GP-friendly environment in a lot of ways because there's a lot of capital out there and GPs are dictating the terms more so than investors are. Mm-hmm. And because these development deals that are projecting 17, 18 IRRs, they're having no problem at all being capitalized. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you, man. I mean, and it's, this is where, for instance, LPs and well, look, GPs, everybody has to get educated, but LPs also have to put their foot down because from a general partner perspective, I can also tell you that Obviously, LPs have to get educated and general partner, part of their duty over the long term is to educate their investors, right? Um, Or to provide frameworks through which they can educate. But LPs also have to realize the game has completely changed in the last few years. So look, five years ago, six years ago, you could realistically expect double digit cash, cash on cash on acquisitions, 20% IRR. And yeah, it's not going to be easy, but it's not the hardest thing in the world, right? Well, you can't expect that anymore. And if your expectations are misaligned, like, I mean, I had a guy who, LP, I'm not going to take his name. He said, I do not invest in any deal below a 20% IRR. And my short answer to that was, you give me five seconds and I'll make this deal appear as a 25% IRR. <laughs> because that's just a goal seek exercise. Yeah, right? you, you slap that cap. Yeah, it's, that's just, you understand? So when somebody gives you that sort of a response, you are basically, I'm telling you, if you say this to the average sponsor and they keep hearing it two or three times, the sponsors, you know what they're going to realize? They're going to realize, okay, I don't really need to change anything. All I really need to change is the exit cap rate or the rent growth, basically. Because look, if a per person says, I mean, instead of saying, look, what are your assumptions? Let's talk about it. And yeah, I don't agree with your deal and I'm not going to invest. That's a very rational answer, whatever. But you say, I don't invest in any deal below 20% IR. Well, I got a 25% IR deal just for you. <laughs> right? So LPs also have to get themselves educated and realize that, Things you could do in the past, you can't do anymore. I mean, things change, conditions change, and you have to adapt with the times. 
it's globally a very low return environment. Yeah. And so you, if, if you want the same returns, then you have to increase the risk that you're taking. I mean, just because these things tend to balance out. I mean, over the long term. The- nobody was hurrying, Nobody was complaining when they were making double digit cash flows five years ago. Nobody was ever saying, hey, I don't really think this is real. I don't really think we should be making double digit cash flows and our operations suck. We don't have a good operational team. We don't have a good business plan and we still make double digit cash flows. So nobody said it then. So you can't complain now when returns are compressed, yields are compressed, because like you said, things tend to level out over the long term. So if you feast over here, there's going to be a famine over here. If you have have a famine over here, there's going to be a feast over here. That's just the natural order of things. So one other point that I made on my reply back to you on from the newsletter was, and that you referenced it at the start of the interview today, I said, a niche that theoretically sounds attractive in today's environment, buying a newly built building. Yeah. The, the developer has earned his fee by going through permit, entitlement, construction, and lease up, and something that potentially be an added benefit. You're not buying from an equity group trying to squeeze the last penny. And I mean, that maybe a very subjective comment, but it was based more so on the sense that a developer builds and that's a, he's added his value and he's looking to wax it. Whereas an equity group would potentially be more looking to squeeze. I mean, they bought it and now they want to squeeze it, right? Whereas a developer, I mean, their business plan was to buy Yeah, it. see, Jorge, but again, obviously that's a matter of perspective, but I do feel that developers have really wisened up also because developers of a previous generation would build it, sell it, move on, right? And now they've realized that as the market generally has gotten sophisticated, all people, all players in the market have gotten more and more and more sophisticated. So even developers now realize, at least the smart ones realize, the value of their building. So they could have built it at whatever price or cost, but they know what the market price is because data is so freely available, right? So I do think developers have wisened up to this game to a certain degree, the smart ones have at least, and they will extract their pound of flesh out of this, at least in the big cities, for sure. The good ones, they will not only extract their pound of flesh, The some of the more intelligent ones that I actually was actually complimenting one developer on this is they will give you words like the exact words brokers will give you. It's off market. You don't have to be in a beauty contest. And you're like, yeah, I don't got to be in a beauty contest, but you're charging me 20% more than the beauty contest. So it's kind of a beauty contest, right? (laughs) So I think they've wisened up on their sales and marketing uh, tactics as well, at least the ones in the big cities. And they are getting to a stage where at least they are they're not as good as the equity groups in squeezing the last dollar out, but they're pretty close to it. They're not bad. Yeah. I mean, and it's a niche that, that we still need to do some further, I mean, looking into to see if it's something that we see as attractive or, or not. But it's based on the fact that how much the prices for 80s, 90s buildings has increased. And the theory or the hypothesis, call it, that newly built buildings haven't, aren't as competed at this yeah. point and to where maybe it may be the case that the spread has compacted a little bit between 80s and 90s vintage oh, buildings yeah. and newly no, no, built it's buildings. Not maybe it has compacted like if mm-hmm. you look at all the charts cap rate charts price per unit charts price per square foot charts rents versus price charts you know the, those sort of things it's gone from like a, like something really wide which you're like okay i get why it's wide because something is new something is old i get why it's wide 
to they're right on top of each other like this. So a lot of even bigger sponsors now say who were buying C's and B class properties. Well, they're even saying right now, well, look, if I can go buy an A class property for the same cap rate or similar price per square foot or with a better quality resident profile and a better rent structure and less cost of maintenance, well, screw it. Why would I even compete with a B class property? Screw it. Just go for A class. Because if we're right on top of each other, then go. For, then it's a flight to quality. But it's a flight to quality if you can afford it. If you can't afford it, you're just left picking off the scraps, and you're you're in a fight to death, basically. So a, a barrier to entry into the newly built is the higher price. I mean, there's it takes a bigger group to enter that space. Higher price, and I think another barrier to entry also is just getting acclimatized mentally to the fact that. Hey, things are $250,000 a unit, as an example. Yeah. Just that mental barrier, a lot of times, it takes a lot of time for people to get to, which, again, but, but is a mental thing more than an economic it, thing. It's easier. It breaks once what we're just once it becomes wide known that the spread has really shrunk. That's when you get comfortable paying. So it's easier. So if, if there's something that causes, if the typical spread is, $100,000 per unit and the old one sells for 100 the new sells for 200,000 mm-hmm. then the spread compacts and then it's tough to break the mental barrier of wait how am yeah. i going to pay 250 yeah. uh, 250,000 per unit yep. but when you see that you're already paying 180 for the old yeah. one now it becomes easy to okay. No but see you're paying 180 but also a lot of times people don't factor into the fact you're paying 180 but you're probably also putting in 10 to 15,000 a unit so it's not really 180 it's 180 plus your rehab dollars, right? So when you do that math, the spread tightens even more because it's not just 180 and you're good to go. No, the whole business model is 180 plus I do all this lipstick on a pig stuff and then I take it to the next level. But well, that lipstick on a pig costs you money. And that sums up what we're seeing right now. I mean, we're seeing, and, and we're in Austin. So Austin, if people are if people are paying crazy prices in, in the whole US, especially in Austin. And so you're seeing people paying high prices for buildings that that you start to ask yourself, well, what if I, how much can I buy a new, I mean, newly built, a newly built for, or how much can I develop for? Oh yeah, and one more thing I wanted to ask: what's also happening? This is natural evolution. New newer products, typically not always, are being built bigger and bigger, right? So it used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago, developers were building out 30-unit apartment buildings, 20-unit apartment buildings, just regular run-of-the-mill stuff. Well, very few developers are doing that now because it's just not cost-efficient to do it from a development point of view, running point of view, whatever you want to say. So developers are now building bigger and bigger and bigger buildings in terms of square footage, all of that stuff. So when you build a bigger and bigger and bigger building and your price per unit is going up, now the entry point to a lot of these things is like 35 40 million dollars whereas an entry point, just just total mm-hmm. dollars forget about everything else yeah. total dollars could be 15 or 20 million say 10 years ago well now the entry point just just to get a ticket to the dance nobody's going to dance with you just to have the ticket to enter the party is 40 million dollars now so that is another big hurdle right even at 40 million you're probably not going to win a deal but at least you'll be in the party so that is also something that's happening a lot So what are our conclusions? Uh, I don't know what the conclusion is, because if I had one, I'd be a really rich guy. (laughs) The conclusion is that, look, you got to play the game you're really good at. So in my particular case, I'm good at operations. I'm good at basically 
I'm good at certain things, but if I try to be everything for everyone, as an example, like for instance, I can't, I mean, I have one, I think, class C asset, but I don't have any class C assets because I just don't understand the trade there. I don't get it because everybody keeps telling me, you come in, you change the countertops, you put in gooseneck faucets, you change the lighting package. And I'm like, dude, you can put whatever the hell you want. But if your resident base is economically stressed, if they're making $35,000 a year, well, how are you going to get your $100, $150 rent pump? Like logically, it doesn't make any sense. And people seem to think not only are you going to get your $100, $150 rent bump, you're also going to have a 3.5% rent growth for five years. Well, something's got to give, right? Whereas in the B&A space, I feel at least your residents are less economically stressed. So whereas it's still going to be a struggle, it's less of a struggle. So you have to go to places where there's less struggles. There's, I mean, you have some level of an unfair advantage. So I think that's what you got to, but hey, it's getting harder and harder, man. Even in the B space, it's impossible. A space, it's impossible. So the pace of acquisitions has really slowed down. That's not by choice. That's just the way things are, right? Because I have to be opportunistic. Yeah. Yeah, I think you you summed it up well. From a GP perspective, I mean, focus on what you're good at. And that doesn't mean that you can't get good at other things, obviously. But I think that's like the most important aspect. And for, for example, from a GP perspective, from from an LP perspective, it's like, and again, it goes back to what you were saying. If the most important factor in an analyzing a deal is the sponsor, it's how good are they at what they do. And if I'm analyzing a roundup development deal, the first thing I'm going to look at is how many have you built before, because there's a big risk component throughout yeah. the the development that is mitigated by that one piece, but. And then just to conclude from the LP standpoint and, and reiterate, I think regarding the answer to the question of ground up development versus acquisitions, it's just lining up risk and returns, right? Lining up the risk that you're taking with the upside that you're taking. So investing in deals where you feel that you are actually getting compensated for the risk mm -hmm. that you're taking because they're out there. Right? But I mean, we see terms of all kinds, very different kinds that that if you have two deals, they're complete. I mean, if you yeah, evaluate, the, if, if you evaluate, if you evaluate two deals without looking at the terms, it is impossible for me to tell you which deal looks better or not. Oh yeah, uh, terms dictate everything, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good. Well, hopefully you can find the answer and you can let me know because you're we'll a smarter guy than I am. We'll, so we'll work find on out it. and let me know. I want to become a rich guy pretty quickly. Okay. All right, Omar. Well, thank okay. you very much. Thank I you really very enjoyed much this. for having me. Bye.